Well, good morning. <laughs> if you were here last week, you heard David's question about why he's never on the screen. Well, I think the office heard it and said, not only will you not be on the screen, we're going to put your wife on the screen twice uh, to answer any doubt uh, that he had there. So, hey, welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Matt. It's a joy to be with you here this morning. Uh, my wife and I and the kids had a chance to get away this last week and just grateful for David and the team uh, doing a great job in our absence. Uh, if you, yeah, come on, give him a round of applause. We're still keeping him off the screen, but we're glad uh, for what he does uh, bring us here. So if you missed any of these weeks, we are in our series here called Be Real, uh, looking at what real faith looks like in real life. And uh, one of the things that we've been walking through as we go through this series is uh, really how do you determine the quality or the reality of your faith? And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're just listening in. You're not yet uh, a follower of Jesus and you're kind of curious. This is a great series for you to be involved in. Uh, to hear that. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time, but uh, perhaps your faith seems a little stagnant. It, it feels as if uh, you're not totally uh, engaged in a way that perhaps you once were. Maybe God seems distant. This is a great series for you to uh, lean into as well. And so I just wanted to recap the last couple of weeks, if you missed it, uh, and talk about where we're going uh, here this morning. But week one, what we looked at really was that pressures reveal the quality of our faith through trials, that the difficulties in life, the, the tribulations, the things that we so often avoid are often given to us by God uh, to reveal the quality of our faith, that in those moments, our faith would shine brightest, right? That it is easy uh, to follow God and be a follower of Jesus in easy circumstances. When it reveals its reality in our life is when life is hard, we still choose to exalt and praise him. And that is uh, what we talked about in week one. Week two, David uh, talks through that desires reveal the quality of our faith through temptations. That temptations are a reality for every single one of us in this life. It is impossible to avoid them. It is when our desires get corrupted. Our desires are not always evil. In fact, God has given us many of those desires. They are good and right, but the enemy would cause us to go someplace else to get them that is wrong. And when we are faced with those decisions, as David talked about, we have to ask ourselves the question, do I want the shortcut version that will not deliver, or do I want the version that God has promised that will always deliver ultimate satisfaction, which is when our desires meet their completion in him. So that was week two. We, what we're talking about this week really is uh, that our lifestyle and actions reveal the quality of our faith. But today's going to be, and I'm just going to uh, warn you, today is a little bit of a heavier conversation uh, the text that we're going to work through is uh, a heavier conversation, and so uh, I hope you hear my heart in this conversation this morning. Um, it is one out of love, it is one out of concern, uh, and it is one of being faithful to the scriptures. Uh, it, it is uh, not always a fun conversation to have, but it would be even less fun if we never had this conversation. We're having this conversation today because we love and care about your spiritual Journey. So before we do that, we're going to have a little bit of fun, because it's always good to laugh. Now that I have you all uncomfortable, uh, we're going to laugh to relax you a little bit. <clears throat> so uh, with my uh, foster kids, we have this little game where I try to bring a dad joke to dinner every night, and I, sometimes I forget, and I'm really trying to work on my dad jokes. So we're going to play a little quiz around dad joke text today. Uh, you have to decide if these dad jokes are real or not, and maybe if you want to admit if you've said some of these yourself. So here, here they are. Here's the first one. I'll call you later. Don't call me later. Call me dad. Is it real or is it fake? It, it happens, but in this survey, this one was a fake. Now, you've probably said this one yourself, probably at dinner. Are you hungry? No. I'm dad. All right, here's the next one. 
Dad, there's a moth outside the bathroom door. Can you get rid of it? Please hurry because I'm going to cry. Dad, dad, dad is dead. You're next. Love, moth. <laughs> this one is, it is real indeed. I'm very jealous of that dad. That's, that, that takes skill. Next one. Dad, can I go to Sean's party? Sean going to be there? Everyone is going to be there. That can't be right. Everyone can't be there because you're definitely not going. <laughs> not going to lie, that one's in my notes to use for future use. Okay. This one actually is fake. Uh, one day it will be real, and uh, my kids will understand it. Here's, here's the next one. In a meeting, in a meeting, in a meeting. Dad, are you in a meeting? No, why? I put this one in here because I have lost count of how many times my father-in-law has called me. I've literally bought him, a, or going to buy him a, a new screen protector that when he closes it, it automatically shuts his phone. Because I think out of the 30 times he calls me, he intends to call me once. The rest are pocket dials. So I, I appreciate this one. This one is real. All right, here's, I think this is the last one. What's the difference between a piano, a tuna, and a pot of glue? I don't know, Dad. You can tune a piano, but you can't piano a tuna. What about the glue? I knew you'd get stuck there. <laughs> that's, that's a dad worthy, like, oh, that's terrible. This one is unfortunately real. This one is real. So I'm exercising these. Uh, the girls think they're just as terrible as you probably think all my jokes are terrible. Uh, but that's, that's the fun of it. See, there, there's this thing in life where uh, we, we like to joke, we like to have fun, and, and there's this whole idea around being real and authentic that we're talking about in life. And, and it's kind of the push of our culture to be real, be authentic, be our true selves. Well, there's this reality within faith where there's some people, according to the words of Jesus and according to the words of James, that this real, authentic self that they might think is true of themselves is not actually true. There's some posers, I guess, if you wanted to use that word, in terms of life, that counterfeits are everywhere. But the problem that we're going to talk about today, as we look through this real versus fake, we're looking at real versus fake faith. Do we have real faith that saves, or uh, when the buzzer dings, are we going to get the fake stamp of faith on our life? And, and this is a conversation that doesn't start with James. It actually uh, starts with Jesus. So we're going to be primarily in James chapter 2, but if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and turn to James. Um, but we're going to be in uh, Matthew to begin with here as we look at the words of Jesus. Because uh, in the same way that we just did this real versus fake test, uh, Jesus and James are going to give us our own real versus fake faith test. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, listen to what Jesus says. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Jesus is referring to the final day of judgment where we stand before him and we give an account for the life we lived and there will be many, he says, he uses this word very clearly, many will say to me on that day, did we not do all of the religious activity you would expect of a follower of Jesus? Did we not even find success in our religious activity? He says there were those 
who drove out demons, performed miracles, and they kept repeating this phrase, in my name, in my name. And he's, he's creating this really clear point. There will be a large group of people who lived their life surrounded by religious activity, convinced they were following Jesus, and what Jesus will say to them at the end is, depart from me, I never knew you. This word knew here, uh, as you look at it in the original language, it implies this firsthand personal experience. He's saying, you might have leveraged my name, you might have learned how to do some things, but you and I never had a relationship. You and I never knew each other in a firsthand experience. You might have gotten caught up in the wave, but the relationship wasn't genuine. He says, away from me, you evil doers. The original word here indicates this word of lawlessness, that just total disregard for God's law. Well, you have to ask the question, Jesus is speaking in the New Testament context, what is the law that he's uh, talking about? The law Jesus gives us is what? Love God, love others. And so he's saying, you might have learned how to do religious activity, but your heart never loved me and it never loved the people you were serving. You might have learned how to perform miracles or do types of things where God showed up, but you were not actively engaged in a life-giving relationship because you didn't love me and you didn't love others. Now, those are some really strong words from the compassionate, kind, and loving Jesus. And the reason I said this conversation this morning might have the opportunity to make some of you uncomfortable or perhaps feel offended is Jesus is saying, if we read this in our context, is he's saying there's people who are sitting in these rows who think they are Christians who are not. There's people who attend church every week who do not have a life-giving relationship with Jesus. There's people who even serve him who don't know what it means to actually follow him. They've been caught up in the religious activity. So part of our hope in our conversation today is that you would walk out of here with complete and utter confidence in your relationship with Jesus. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're, we're glad you're here, but we would be doing you a disservice if we never told you what it means and the importance and weight of having a life-giving relationship with Jesus. That you can come in here, you can feel good, it can be great, but until you surrender to Jesus, it does nothing to change your eternal destination. And so as we move, before we move into James, I want you to see something really clearly, though, because what James is going to talk about in the context and way he's going to frame it could feel a little bit like this works-based salvation. And I want to be incredibly clear, that is not what we believe. We believe strongly that there is a uh, salvation is by faith through grace alone. In fact, you see this idea of faith all throughout scriptures, that sinners are saved by not good works, but faith. You see that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. If you want to write these down and, and read these for yourselves later, followers of Jesus must walk by faith, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. We're actually going to come back uh, to that verse later. And so as we get into this passage, I hope you feel some of this tension that Scripture has set for us. There's this tension of, um, I know how to be in and around faith, but there's a type of faith that is fake. It doesn't save. And there is a type of faith that does save. Well, how do you know the difference? How do you, how do you know that you have saving faith and not superficial faith? Well, that's what James is going to do for us. So go ahead and flip over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. We're just going to kind of walk uh, through this passage together. James 14. 2.14, excuse me. 
What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Up in verse 14, he said, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone has the claim of faith? And what he's saying is, what good does it do if somebody claims that they are a Christian, but if you look and evaluate their life, it doesn't seem to measure up? And then he uses an incredibly uh, practical example here in verse 14, and he says, excuse me, in verse 15, and he says, basically, imagine walking up to somebody who's in destitute and a difficult situation, and you look at them, and you have the opportunity and the ability to do something about that problem, and all you say is, be warm and filled, and you go away. Now, what he's not saying is that you are responsible to solve every problem, but he's saying, If you have it in your ability to solve a problem, to love somebody, and you are not moved to love for them, it must be evidence that the love of God and love of others is not the key marker of your life. Now, some people read this and say, well, that's why we have to go solve every problem of every poor person ever. That's not James' point. James' point is that if your love for God does not move you to action, it has to ask the question, Is there genuinely a love for God in my life or not? Is it actually leading me to a changed life? It says in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And here's the great debate that church and Christians and uh, largely the Christians and Catholics have had for a very long time of, do good deeds save you? The question is absolutely not. There is no amount of good deeds that I can do to meet the perfection of God's uh, holiness. However, what James is saying is that if you have genuine faith, what will always be a result is a life that is moved to action. John Calvin says it this way. He says, it is faith alone that justifies, meaning it is faith alone that brings us into right standing with God. But faith that justifies can never be alone. What he's saying is you can't just say, I'm a Christian, And remain unchanged. And in fact, uh, that is a definition of fake faith for us. Fake faith is convenient and it affects part of my life. As you consider the example that James gave there, he said, um, it's the type of faith that says, oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian, but don't ask me to do anything with my faith. Well, I'm I'm a Christian, but don't ask it to require anything of my life to be different. You see, fake faith wants it how it wants it. It looks at God, it looks at Jesus, it looks at church as simply uh, an add-on to a lifestyle they already determined to live. It says, here's my life and here's what I want. I hope God blesses it. It sees God often as a rabbit's foot. I have this plan, I have this venture, and I hope God gives me a good life. I I spent uh, five years working in the nation of Taiwan, and the nation of Taiwan is a syncretistic nation, which means basically uh, they're very okay with grabbing Buddhism and Taoism and animism. And, and what we found as we began to share the gospel with these individuals was that they were totally okay to add Christianity to that. Because what they were hearing was a version of Christianity that they really liked. There's a God who loves me unconditionally, who wants to give me eternal hope, peace, and security. I'm in. And it's free. I'm in. And so they were saying, okay, that's fine. We're going to add Jesus into Buddhism and Taoism and animism because this seems 
really convenient. And we have to press in beyond that and say, no, 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 it's not how this works. You don't get to add on Jesus because Jesus is the only way to eternal life. It means you have to forsake all these other idols, all these other gods, and he has to be your sole savior. And then they'd say, well, what does that mean? Well, it affects every part of your life. It means you can't go worship the dead anymore. It means you don't need to offer sacrifices to these idols, which there was foods um, being offered to idols all the time. Well, that would bring a lot of shame on my family if I stopped doing that. What if the demons came after me, right? It was this um, checkpoint in their life where they realized following Jesus wasn't just an add-on. It required me to change everything about my life. And a lot of people said, no, I'm good. It's too inconvenient for me. I don't really want it to affect all my life. Now, you don't probably, hopefully, have an idol of Buddha in your home or you're not offering sacrifices to the dead. So your wrestle isn't, uh, do I have Jesus or Buddha? Your wrestle and our wrestle in America is, do I sit on the the throne of my life? Do my desires sit on the throne of my life? Does the American dream sit on the throne of my life? Or does Jesus sit on the throne of my life? That's the question we have to wrestle with is, is will Jesus simply be an addition to my life or will Jesus be the savior and leader of my life? Because there's a large, large difference. What we have fallen into as a trap, as a culture, is that it's okay if Jesus is compartmentalized. That it's okay if I live my life and I do my things. God's okay with it. Jesus is good with it. He understands. What James is saying is that just, it just can't be. If you've met Jesus, everything changes. Let's keep going in verse 18. It says, but someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Even the demons believe that and shudder. He says, there's, a, there's this idea that you can talk the talk, and you know how to talk the talk, and you might even have an emotional response to this type of faith. And he says, that, that emotional response doesn't mean much. Right? You can come in, and you can be moved by a song, or you can be encouraged by a sermon. You can go to a conference, and it doesn't mean yet you have saving faith. Now, why? Well, here's the reason he gives. He says, you believe that there's one God, and he's using this phrase that was very key to the Jews in the Old Testament, and they would have known this. It was this phrase, the Lord our God, hero is the Lord our God is one. Everybody would repeat it. Everybody knew it. And he's saying, you can even profess and claim that there is one and only God. You might even have an emotional response to it. He said, but that alone does not determine saving faith. You know why? It's because even the demons believe that. Because even the demons believe that there's a God. Even the demons believe that there's only one God. And even the demons have an appropriate response to that God. They shudder in fear because they know his power. And so as you hear, and maybe these are thoughts you even thought yourself, as you think and wonder about the reality of God and and does he deserve your uh, submission, listen, even the demons who sit in utter rebellion of God go, oh, I don't want to mess with that God. He's, He's large and he's powerful And as I listen to our culture, as it talks about God and it demeans God and it speaks like God is distant and unpowerful, what I'm I'm hearing is that your faith is even smaller than that of a demon. Staggering. 
We can say the right things. We can even have an emotional response, and yet it is not saving faith. Verse 20. It says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Let me park right there because that, that uh, verse needs to be unpacked. He says that you see a person is considered righteous. Not that he is made righteous, that he is considered righteous. Because we are made righteous by Christ's sacrifice for us alone. Let's just be abundantly clear on that. He's saying, but that becomes evident to the world around us when your life begins to express that change has come to you. You see that? That's the point he's making there, that you're considered righteous. You are observed to have the righteousness of Christ. Verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He uses these two examples of people from the Old Testament who had huge decisions to make about whether they were going to follow God with everything. Abraham was, was being asked to give up the thing that was most precious and most dear to him. Would he hold his desire as greater than his obedience to God, or would he ultimately obey God in spite of his greatest desire? And for Rahab, she was forced to choose allegiances. To choose the allegiance of following the God of Israel meant she could be killed as a traitor, yet she was willing to make that sacrifice. She was willing for her faith in God to cost her everything. See, here, here's what I want us to see today. If you get nothing, I want you to get this. It is impossible to surrender to Jesus and stay the same. It is impossible to meet the love of Jesus, to have a, a genuine conversion, and to remain the same. I've used this example before, but it would be like you walking out onto Interstate 81 today, and a uh, tractor trailer hits you at 65 miles an hour while you're standing there. Nothing about you would be the same. Nothing about your life, your body would remain the same, and in the same way, but in a positive manner of not getting run over by a semi-truck. The love of Jesus is so great and so powerful and so real and so unstoppable that when we surrender to it, it has to move something in us. And so it begs the question, if you have claimed to have faith in Jesus, yet your life has remained unmoved from its position before, have you genuinely surrendered is the question it is brought to us. You see, real faith is costly, and it affects all of my life. It is not costly in the sense that I have to earn it. It is costly in the sense that it causes me to give up and change my desires towards sin. It causes me to lay down my wants and pick up his. It means that I'm no longer on the throne of my life. And for those of us who like control and those of us who like to, to be in charge, that is difficult to hear, but it is good news because when you think about what the gospel speaks over us, the gospel speaks to us that if we are driving the car because the wages of sin is death, we are driving a car that is headed towards destruction. And when Jesus stepped in and went to the cross, he paid the price to get in the driver's seat, the place of authority in your life to steer you not, a, not towards destruction, but towards life and life abundant like David said last week. 
And if that's true, it means that he owns our life. And he has access to everything. That we don't get to compartmentalize away the things we don't want God to touch. Now, does that mean we love every second of it? No. Does that mean some things aren't a little bit harder to hand over? No, absolutely they are because we're human and we're sinful and we're being rescued from that. But the mark of real faith is God owns all of this. And some of this is really hard to give up. But I know he rescued me. I know he died for me. And so what that means then is that he gets everything. He owns it all. My life is in complete submission to him. I want you to read Hebrews 11.6 with me. It's just a couple pages to your left, three or four pages to your left. Hebrews 11.6 says this. So without faith, it is impossible to please God because anybody who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, this verse could be discouraging if you look at it one way, but uh, for me, this is an incredibly encouraging verse. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. What that tells me is it is possible for me to please God. It is possible for the creator of the universe to look down upon my life and smile. It is possible for the creator of the universe to look in on my decisions and, and rejoice in the life I'm living. How? Because I have chosen to place my faith in Jesus as my sole Savior. That also encourages me, the next part of this, because it says he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You know what that tells me? Not only is God pleased with me, he has opened the door for a life-giving relationship with me. And if I will earnestly seek him, I will be incredibly rewarded for that pursuit. And here's where I think the line is drawn for us in this verse. What he's saying is if there is no desire to earnestly seek him, the question has to be asked, have you actually surrendered? Because if you don't desire him and you don't want to seek him, that doesn't mean all the time. Listen, I'm your pastor. There's times I don't want to seek him. But if that desire is never there, I only seek him for when I want things. The question might be, do we actually have saving faith? And listen, I don't mean to cause shame by this question. The real shame of this would be to never ask this question. The real shame would be to let you come in and out of here for 20 years and have to stand before Jesus and he says, I never knew you. I never had that life-giving relationship with you. That would be the real shame. But I want you to see what he says about the same people in the same chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. And I want you to read verse 17 with me. It says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, who had embraced the promises, uh, embraced the promise, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. You see that? By faith. Well, earlier it said he was justified by works. Well, now it's saying, he was justified by his faith that led him to actions. Verse 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she was welcomed, she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And so in two separate books, these same individuals are held up as examples. In one chapter, they're held up as examples of action. In another chapter, they're held up as examples of faith. 
what you ought to see is that they are being held up because they are both one in the same. Because their faith led them to a different life. Their faith led them to make costly choices of obedience for God. And so the, the question that as we're going to keep circling back around to this is, if your life remains unchanged, maybe you need to go back to the Savior and ask him to change you for good. Now, I don't mean you're wrestling with a sin and you're fighting against it, because that's part of all of our journey. What I mean is that you're still the same bitter, unforgiving, crusty old grouch that you were before Jesus as you were after Jesus. Saying is this faith has to move us into something. Now, I'm not talking about perfection because you will live a life of misery pursuing perfection because Abraham wasn't perfect, certainly wasn't perfect. You read his story. Rahab certainly had a past. She wasn't perfect. The only perfection we are to be concerned with is Christ, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, God made him, being Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is getting into a little bit of finer details of theology, but it is incredibly important to your journey. So dial in with me here for a second. Jesus was sinless. He came to earth. When we went to the cross, he took your sin upon him. He became sin who knew no sin so that when he went, he paid the price for all of our mistakes, all of our sin, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. This word uh, that we talk about here is called being imputed righteousness. It is righteousness that is given to you. So what he's saying is that you are declared righteous at the moment of surrender to Jesus because he has given his righteousness to you. If you think back to what James said earlier, he said they were observed to be righteous when their life was moved to action. So make no mistake. Get out of the business of trying to save yourself. Get out of the business of good deeds and right behavior that it's going to make you right with God. It's just not true. The only thing that will make us right and give a saving faith is surrender to Jesus. And then that will result in a life of action and change. Later on in the same book, 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us to preach this very sermon and to have this very conversation. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Well, what's the test? The test is, is Jesus my leader and forgiver? The, the test is, have I put myself in place of surrender and submission to Jesus as both the forgiver of my life and the ultimate authority? You hear us use this phrase, leader and forgiver, all the time, and it's not on accident, it's on purpose. We use this phrase because these are two essential pieces to understanding your salvation, that you could have no part in forgiving yourself. It is only in surrender to Jesus that you are forgiven, and you can have no part in being the leader of your life anymore because he has purchased you back. And so I'm going to leave you with these questions. Is Jesus the forgiver of your life? Well, the difficulty of one of these sermons, and this is, I've labored in prayer and work over this sermon, so I hope this is clear to you. The difficulty of one of these sermons is that there are some of you sitting here today who've always wrestled with your eternal security. 
you've always wrestled with knowing whether you were saved or not. And you believe you are, and you've prayed the prayer, and you're trying to live in surrender, but you're just not sure, and you feel wishy-washy, and you're going to hear this message, and you're going to go home, and, and you might feel even less secure than you came in, and that is the risk of preaching one of these sermons. The other risk is that there's some of you who will come in and feel incredibly confident in your faith and, and feel like you have this all together, and in reality, there isn't that relationship with God. And then there's others who are confident in your relationship with God, confident that He is your Savior, who will miss this message entirely and what it means for our life. That is the risk of this, but we're going to do it anyway. So here's the questions I want, to, want you to consider. Have you repented of your sins? Have you repented of your sins? And not just, oh man, I'm sorry I got caught, but genuine godly sorrow. I grieve over the weight of what I did and who it hurt and what it has cost. Jesus, would you forgive me? Have you repented? Here's the next question. Have you accepted his forgiveness? Have you gone through the process of not only laying your sins before God, but actually believing that he has forgiven you? Because I know some people, I talk with some people, who are incredibly sorry for what they did, but they have lived the rest of their life beating themselves up, trying to do good deeds to make up for their shortcomings, to try to get God to accept them. The gospel declares that you are forgiven, and the question is, will we receive that forgiveness and believe, one, that God has forgiven us, but two, then begin to forgive ourselves for those decisions that we've made? Here's the next question. Do you often confess and repent? One of the quickest ways for me to identify somebody who isn't in faith or isn't walking with Jesus is an unwillingness to acknowledge their sin, an unwillingness to say, that was me. See, because confession and repentance will always be a natural rhythm of a follower of Jesus. Somebody who says, yep, screwed that one up. <laughs> Let me throw myself on the mercies of Jesus clearly understands that he is their only hope. We do not expect Christians to not screw up. In fact, if we have good theology and good understanding, we expect it evermore because we realize that God is always working something deeper in our life, right? Before, when you started, you might have uh, had to repent for blowing up and, and screaming and yelling. And five years later, you're not screaming and yelling anymore, but that thought still pops up in your heart of doing that. That desire still pops up in it. Well, well God's going to call us to confess and repent for that. Is it a natural rhythm in your life? And here's the last one. And these are not all inclusive. There's a ton you could ask, but... Do you live a life free of guilt and shame? Not only have you believed your forgiveness of Jesus for you, but it has changed the way you live. You're not defined, uh, actually there is one more, which is the next, next one, which kind of brings clarity to this. Do you define yourself by your past or what Jesus has done for you? When you consider your life, do you say, man, I'm a sinner who screwed up and I did this, 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 and that's all I'll ever be. No, no, no. Do you recognize who I was? Jesus purchased me from that, and has given me the position of a son, of an heir to the throne, of being righteous in his sight. That's what it means to make Jesus the forgiver of our life, to be free from that past. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't creep up. It doesn't mean we don't fight it, but it means we don't live in that place anymore. Here's, here's the next question. Is Jesus the leader of your life? Now, there may be many of you who identify uh, readily with Jesus as forgiver. And here's where uh, rubber really meets the road for us, because it's easy to enjoy the benefits of forgiveness, but it also brings along with it 
Lord, that he is our Lord, he is our leader. And this is the dividing line, I think, that most followers of Jesus or churchgoers in America will have to ask the question, is he really the authority in my life? And here's, here's how you would know that. Is honoring God with your life the most important thing to you? When you consider your life and your actions, is it the most important thing that as you consider your life, honoring God is utmost for you? Or is it getting my way, getting blessed, getting good fortune, getting whatever I want out of life and out of God? There's a difference. Next question is, do your decisions uh, reflect what you think Jesus would do in that same situation? When you're in a hard spot, do you think, what's the easiest way out of this? Or do you think, what would Jesus do right here, right now? Now, does that mean you do it every time? No, because then you'd be Jesus himself. But it means there's this desire in our heart to live a life in the way that Jesus called us to, that we consider him in everything we do, which is our third one. Does God have say in your relationships, finances, career, and time? Does, does God really have final say when you think about what you want to do next? Now, when you think you want to do in the future, does he have final say? Here's the last one. Do you seek to love others as God does? And this comes back to Jesus' point about lawlessness, that we would love God and love others. Does it mean we love perfectly? No. But there's a desire in our hearts to love our enemies. There's a desire in our hearts to love our families better. There's a desire in our heart to treat people with kindness. That flows not to get God's love, but in a response because we have already received God's love. And so as we come to the end of this, there's going to be a card on the way out if you want to take it. There's some other questions in there that you could ask. Here's the question I want, to, I want you to leave with today. Are you confident in your relationship with the Lord? And if you are confident in your relationship with the Lord, could you help somebody else grow in their confidence? Maybe you're here today and, and you're not confident. You're not sure. You're, you want in. You want to know this saving faith. You want to leave behind this activity. You want the peace that passes all understanding. We would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to make Jesus both the leader and forgiver of your life. Maybe you're here and and you've largely lived a life of Jesus as forgiver, but you've never really decided that he's your leader. Maybe today's the day that you do that. Maybe today's the day where you get off the throne and you say, Jesus, you're in charge. I remember I lived the first probably seven years of my Christian journey not really ever uh, realizing, acknowledging, and living in response to Jesus as Lord. I really did see God as this rabbit's foot out of a difficult childhood. When I came to the position, I was about 18 or 19, I think it was about 19, when it finally hit me. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. I don't get to be the shot caller anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't get that. And you know what? It was so freeing to me. It was so freeing to me because I finally understood that I wasn't determining life based on my knowledge, what I wanted. I was now living life in response to the creator of the universe who saw my beginning and my end, and I realized that the plan he had for my life was far greater, full of far more joy, far more peace than a life I could have ever written to myself. I hope today both encouraged and challenged you to not only claim that Jesus is your leader and forgiver, but to live a life that he is your leader and forgiver.
Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. Lord, we thank you for your word and the difficulty it can bring to our comfort sometimes. But your word tells us to examine ourselves, to consider. If there's anybody here today who is not yet a follower of Jesus, I pray that um, their heart would be moved towards you. If you're here today and you want to have a conversation with us, we'd love to talk with you about that. Jesus, I thank you that your love is so large that it changes everything. I thank you that your hope is so powerful that it gives us strength to carry on. I pray that we would be one with you today. I pray this thing in Jesus' name.